Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, City Council has approved $60 million in spending cuts, but there's still a lot of work to do on the budget side. Meanwhile, the arena deal is likely to be quickly approved. Take a closer look at how we got to this point. Also, the Calgary Folk Fest will feature Alberta's first approved outdoor cannabis consumption zone. Plus, a look at whether the date of the federal election should be moved to accommodate a Jewish holiday. Well, the decision has been made by City Council to approve $60 million in cuts. And this was a needed step, obviously, in trying to bring some semblance of sanity to the property tax situation. But is this a real long-term fix for some of the budget issues that the city's facing? I mean, it's this has been a long time coming. I think people have been warning that we're getting into this situation for three or four years now. So there's a need, I think, for the city to get its house in order, uh, to, to try to find some savings. Where do we go from here? And in terms of the, the money that's being cut, were these the right cuts to make? It's a very large budget that the city has. A lot of different ways you could go at it. And obviously, there's going to be opposition no matter what the city does. I want to explore whether we're on the right track here. What's been accomplished with this decision? Now, joining us for some thoughts is Ward 11 City Council Jeremy Farkas. Councilor, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much for having me. You know, in terms of the overall question, I mean, you, you know, you've certainly been speaking for a long time about the need for city to address the spending side to, to try to get a handle on spending. Is this a, a step in the right direction? Well, it's been astonishing seeing the mass conversion to fiscal conservatism, but uh, I'd say $60 million, it's a good start, but we need to keep going. Uh, as you said, it's not a long-term fix, and moving the burden to the homeowners is no solution either. I'd say everyone at this point, or maybe everyone outside of City Hall, knows that the real problem is the cost of labor at the city, especially as virtually all of the employees are unionized with very high salaries, benefits, and pensions, and I think this is where the cutbacks needs to focus rather than, say, reductions to service. So you're not sure that maybe these are necessarily the right cuts, even though there's a need for the city to address spending? Oh, absolutely. The the way that the process was set up, I think, was also a bit misguided. Uh, council wanted to get staff to go away and just decide, washing our hands of it completely. It sounds good, in pra- but in practice, it's, uh, I think, an abdication of a responsibility. I think that as elected officials, this is too important for administration to decide. Or if we do delegate that, we have to set guidelines. Things like no cuts to emergency services, no closing the swimming pools, none of that ridiculous stuff that's intended to sour the public's mood. So I think at the end of the day, we need to be accountable for what we put in the budgets and what we don't. All right. So you presented a motion last night to try to maybe shift things in a different direction. Explain what what it was you tried to do, because you didn't get a lot of support for it. Sure. So we heard uh, earlier last night that police are able to accommodate a reduction of about 1.75% without impacting their frontline services. But in comparison, the fire and emergency services were asked to provide about a 3.5% decrease. So this cut relates to their emergency response units, and the reduction clearly stated that the risk for reduced service would be for critical medical interventions. So I propose that we reduce the cut to fire and have that money made up for elsewhere in non-essential services. So just for context, if we're cutting the budget by $60 million of about $4 billion, 
that comes to about one and a half percent. So it makes no sense to have double or triple the burden being placed on emergency response. So I understand that we have to find that money to make up for the 60 million, but my idea is that we can take some of the load off of this essential service and put that on other non-essential services to be able to pick up the slack. Because I think to a lot of people, it seems that, you know, that, that of all the things to cut that we're looking at, at fire and emergency services, that, that why are we starting there? So explain how this, this process unfolded so people have a, a deeper understanding of that. Well, it's ridiculous. I think a lot of people point to these cutbacks and say that it has to be things like police and fire, but that's absolutely the wrong way to go. I was actually astonished to see the mayor really went on the attack when I proposed that some of the reductions to fire be scaled back. He actually said that the council made our bed and now we have to lay in it. But I refuse to play that kind of silly game. Seriously, council needs to look in the mirror. We've burned through our emergency fund now to the bare minimum, yet council maintaining the golden five-to-one pensions, doubling the ARC budget from last year, and now demanding emergency services to take the most cuts, it makes no sense. And uh, let me be clear here, Calgarians don't want any cuts to these services. They want us to focus on the need-to-haves rather than the nice-to-haves. So it boggles my mind when city council would insist on cutting essential services, yet keep their own bloated salaries and pensions. Right. So that that was that doesn't appear as though that was on the table here through this process. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, only Councillor Maglioka supported me in my proposal to have that reduction on the fire uh, scaled yeah. back. But losing these needed ser- city services for the, especially the less fortunate are is it's going to weaken, not strengthen our community. And I think council through this time has a really a moral obligation to preserve the services to the vulnerable and those on low incomes. And I think that we can cut the fat at city hall without having to compromise the safety of Calgarians. And I, I for one, refuse to play. The game. I refuse to balance the budget on the backs of the poor, the elderly, and the disabled. And the way that many of these cuts are portrayed, it basically, it's the way that it's set up is fear-mongering. So it's sick that this is even proposed. And unfortunately, I think it's more of the same from this council and that it's pitting business owners against homeowners and really the public against each other. Mm-hmm. So when financial discipline is proposed, so many people jump to the essential services rather than looking in the mirror and the golden pensions, the fat goodbye checks, the corporate welfare, and so on. So I'd just say that we need to take care of our needs first, and there is enough money if we focus on the, the necessaries. Right. And I mean, look, $60 million is, is what was talked about here. And certainly, I think when you talk about salaries and benefits, that's an obvious place to start. I think it's good for council to lead by example. There's savings mm-hmm. to be had there, but, but how far does that get us? I mean, how do we get to the $60 million in your view? In my view, we need to tackle what the cost drivers are. It's, it's the salaries, it's the wages, the benefits, the overtime. We also have to have a hard uh, discussion about what services the city should be in to begin with. I think there's a lot of things like, say, waste and recycling that could be privatized or at least some sort of mixed model. So it's not necessarily that the the service shouldn't be provided, but is it the city, given our, especially our union environment, the best provider of that service? I would argue when you have a a competition scenario in the free market, you'd have a, a competing driver for not just better quality service, but also lower costs. So... While I'm in support of a lot of these services being delivered, I think that we need to take a look at really whether it's the city that should be the one providing that service. Mm-hmm. Well, so where do we go from here? Is, is this now a done deal? I mean, are we, are we at the end of this? We found the cuts. Everything is, is fine. 
we're, we're good, or what happens next here? Oh, no, it's, it's just the beginning. Uh, remember that city council and this emergency tax relief on the business tax side also used $70 million in one-time funds. So th- we have a huge Band-Aid situation that's put in place, and this uh, tax shift issue is going to be rearing its head uh, easily next year, especially if we're arriving at sort of this new normal with the way that yeah. the downtown valuations are set up. My fear is that just cutting 1.5% from the city budget, that does not fundamentally change how the the city works. And the way that the city budgets is backwards. So for example, we we base our expenses on a wish list that includes full employment and ever-increasing pay. And then when our income decreases, we just jack up the rate to make the numbers work. So if we ran our household budget similarly, we would plan for say, a bigger house, a new car, a bigger vacation, and then go back to our employer and demand an increase in pay. So, unfortunately, the real world just, (laughs) it it doesn't work that way. So, critics have suggested that if we don't hike taxes every year, or if we just spend the same as last year, then there will be disastrous consequences to crucial services or layoffs, and I just think that that's irresponsible and, frankly, fear-mongering. One other piece of information that I get out there is that spending still goes up $150 million every year. So despite the fact of council scaling that by, back by 60, we're still spending more than we did last year. So this talk of cuts is actually a little bit of a misnomer in that it's actually still increasing. It's just less of an increase as usual. So we still got some, some deeper structural issues that need to be tackled here. Absolutely. And it's always floated that Calgary has the lowest property taxes, but it's just not true. We have one of the highest costs of city government in all of Canada. The fact is that you have to look at the all-in costs of running a household. So add your water charges, your wastewater charges, the stormwater charges, your green bin, black bin, blue bin. And then there's things like, uh, say, the city charging NMAX a fee to access city land when NMAX is city-owned. So things like that. There's a lot of hidden fees, and if it's a fee that you can't opt out of, I would argue that that's a mandatory tax. All right. Well, as you say, this is just the beginning. Uh, Councillor Farkas, thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. All right. Ward 11 City Councillor Jeremy Farkas, his thoughts on the process up until this point and trying to find these savings, why he thinks maybe this has been the wrong approach, right? And essentially the way it's, it's worked here is you put it to administration. We need to find $60 million in cuts. Go find it. They come back with some recommendations, and City Council basically votes yay or nay. So it was uh, Councillor Farkas, Councillor Maglioka last night, the only two who said, let's take a different approach here. Why, why have we got fire and emergency services uh, first up on the chopping block here? There's got to be other cuts that can be found. I think a lot of other people have been expressing the same. We're investing in things that will improve the downtown core. We're investing in things that will help our structural problems and will ultimately help solve the problem that we're trying to fix with these cuts. So I know that's a bit round, but the point is that if we stop doing that, then we would see a future only of more cuts. Uh, now, I'm not sure the music was behind it there, but uh, it's interesting now because that's the mayor yesterday, and he was asked about this kind of contrast or this paradox between uh, the enthusiasm now to pursue this arena deal and and the city having to find 60 million dollars in spending cuts 
So the mayor has become a real, I think, almost in a way reluctant champion now for this. Trying to argue that no, 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 this spending on the arena, this is the kind of thing that, that we're doing for the long-term benefit of the city. So it does appear as though a lot has changed since even a couple of years ago. At least in terms of what the mayor is saying publicly about this and, and some on city council as well. It was much more acrimonious in the past. Now, I don't know that if there really is even a dissenting voice on city council. There are some who think that the consultation maybe ought to be a bit longer. Uh, but I suspect there will be overwhelming support for this. And I suspect that that decision probably is going to be made next week. So how do we get to this point? It was an interesting uh, in-depth look at all of this uh, in the history leading up to this this week and the dramatic developments at mcleans.ca. Joining us on the line is their Alberta correspondent, Jason Markusov. Jason, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Uh, you've been following this for a long time, too. I mean, it really does feel like it's the same people, but it's it's totally different. It's the same people, and it's not. And it, they're doing things so differently. I don't think you can... Uh, you can give enough credit to the fact that they've negotiated this time behind closed doors. In the last few times, Ken King and the Flames organization thought that the brilliance of their ideas for a West Village Stadium Coliseum Plex thing or their last iteration at uh, the Stampede Grounds, that the brilliance of their plan and their offer would be so shimmering that the public would rush into City Hall demanding that City Hall, City Hall approve this. That didn't work last time. Public negotiations don't work. I will wager you that if I live-tweeted my last house negotiations when I bought my current house, I would not be living in that house right now. That's not the way things work. <laughs> um, so the city did things in, in private, and they got the negotiations down pat this time uh, and presented this all as a bit of a fait accompli. That's one. Two, I think the uh, one of the big uh, thorns in the flame side in the last while, in the last several rounds of this was uh, Mayor Nenshi. Uh, he was he has long been skeptical about this sort of idea, this program of uh, basically spending a lot of public subsidy for to the benefit of a major pro sports and event organization. Um, this time they uh, they held negotiations and they had the event oversight committee largely without. Mayor Nenshi, um, Jeff, Jeff Davison, Ward Sutherland. Uh, these are guys who have always been much more conventional big business boosters. So they're mm-hmm. going to be um, more ready to uh, work with the Flames organization on something that is uh, beneficial to both to both sides, quote unquote. Um, that I think that those were two major G factors. I'd like Nenshi and uh, keep things quiet. Do you think that Nenshi's position has changed, or do you, do you think necessity forced him maybe to, to I, I don't know if evolve is the right word on this, but be more more open to, to embracing this? I mean, I think two things happen. One, I think, you know, given that you're right, there is this probably will get overwhelming support. I don't, I don't even hear this overwhelming taxpayer revolt uh, that would be necessary to uh, overturn council's uh, intention to seal this deal in a, in a week. Um, so he could have, uh, I don't know if he wanted to play the odd man out on this one, basically not being able to convince anybody else it was a bad idea and being on the losing side of a decision. So maybe get, you know, the old Klein thing, get in front of the parade, be, get ahead of that. That's one. I think the other thing that has really shaped council's feeling on this and Nenshi's is how things went with the Olympics. 
this was a case where, you know, the city's been in its economic doldrums, everybody's feeling kind of glum, there's no big shakeup, and the city has now decided that it's the big spark needs to happen to help inspire um, the city. It was the Olympics, 2026 Olympics, and uh, the public public uh, consultation and uh, feedback basically shot that one down. In this case, I think it's the arena and uh, the big, very, very expensive BMO center expansion next to it um, that I think jointly they have a sense, the city has a sense those two will help um, spark some economic activity, um, revitalize that quote-unquote cultural entertainment district. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they lost that chance for a big flash-bang win uh, with the Olympics, um, Nenshi and uh, council want that now. Yeah, I, I do think, and you hit on something where I think this is a different kind of dynamic where the city kind of needs the flames. Now, in the past, I, I think it was a case of the flames trying to convince the city to, to, to get involved. But now that, you know, the city's embarked, as you say, not just on, on the BMO Center expansion, but this this whole concept of the Rivers District, I mean, it, it's all kind of premised on on having this arena or event center, whatever you want to call it, there. So I, I think in a way, the city almost kind of gave the Flames some leverage by saying, we'd sure like to have an arena in this this whole district we envision. Maybe you guys could, could help us out with that. Well, the Flames, but that was where they were pitching in 2017 anyway, um, after they tried to uh, build it on city land in West Village, and that didn't... Uh, didn't go anywhere. I mean, look, this, you know, the, the, the city is making some very lofty promises uh, about what this is going to do to the city. But look at the, uh, uh, you know, you got to, I mean, I just couldn't believe this, uh, the handout uh, image that they sent out with this arena. Normally, when you have an arena yes. announcement, you give it, give, you know, you send out, in, you circulate images of the arena, the cheering fans, the rock concert, the flames going all flamey or something like that. Um, in this case, they showed a picture with the arena just off in the tiny little corner and in, in most of the scene was this big urban utopia of a whole bunch of people congregating in the middle of the street around food trucks and patios and and musicians and a whole bunch of skyscrapers in Victoria Park in the background. Um, they weren't selling an arena. They were selling an, you know, mm-hmm. and they weren't even selling an event center. They were selling urbanism. Um, a lot of that has, you know, I mean, they've been able to do that in East Village without the benefit of an arena, um, you know, the library helped, the condos were already going up uh, there anyway, the music center helped, but I don't think that people are saying those are necessary catalysts. Um, there are some big bang claims in this claim that there's going to be $400 million of benefits to the city, um, that there'll be the equivalent of a new East Village rising in, uh, in Victoria Park largely because of this. And when you put that back to the city, what they'll say is, no, no, I mean, th- this stuff would have all come out anyway. Yeah. So I say, well, why, why make these claims? Why make these bold assertions? Um, let's underline one big difference between why this is a better deal for the city than, uh, than things were in 2017. That's the ticket tax. The fact that the city in thir- over 35 years is going to get 2% of every ticket sold, that's a good amount of cheddar. And um, that, makes, uh, the, th- that means that the city estimates they're going to get about $155 million back from that $275 million they're spending on it. That's something that wasn't in the last several deals. So uh, it is the Flames did give up more than they were willing to in the past. Well, yeah, um, and, that, I mean, and, and that's important. It is, although it, it seems to me because the Flames aren't going to pay rent on, on this. So essentially then the 2% ticket tax almost is, is in lieu of that, it kind of seems like, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, the Flames are going to make a lot of money off the arena. They're, you know, they get 
the, the, the city gets two percent of the uh, uh, of the ticket price and, or ticket ticket this ticket surcharge. The the flames get to keep the flame organization gets to keep the other um, bunch of that, less all their costs and stuff. Um, their this two hundred seventy five million dollar upfront cash bet they're making on this arena is premised on the fact that they're going to make all that and more back on running this great new arena that will get more concerts than the current one. Um, you know, that is, and let, let's be, let's be realistic too. That is a benefit to the city. Um, you know, if you're a fan of Justin Timberlake or Ariana Grande or Elton John this year and you live in Calgary, you have to go up to Edmonton to see them. And, uh, that was getting to be more and more the case with more concerts was only going to increase, um, over time. So that is, I think, let's face it, one benefit that was a bit of a festering problem with, uh, with the Plains Arena. Mm-hmm. Like the question becomes then, does, is it worth, uh, however many hundred million dollars to get, uh, a few more concert, e- concerts a year in your city? But uh, I mean, I think yeah, I think to, to a lot of people there is an appeal there. But I, I do think you, I mean, you touch on where, where for a lot of people, I think there's an appeal in this versus the Olympics. Like I, I can tell you, at least from from our audience, when we were having the Olympic debate, it was overwhelmingly against the Olympics. But I think a lot of the people who are against the Olympics are, are okay with this. At, at least I would say opinions more divided mm-hmm. on this. So it's it, because I think a it's it's much more permanent. As opposed to the Olympics coming and going, it's much easier to visualize what this would be. Uh, it, it just, I think to a lot of people, it's just, okay, well, that would be neat or that would be cool. Maybe it's something our city should have as opposed to anything the Olympics might have delivered that we didn't already have. Uh, and, and that's fair, I think. And people are fans of the Flames, you know, if there was any nagging worries that, uh, you know, going 30 more years trying to patch up the saddle dome with duct tape and uh, chicken wire, right. um, you know, would have maybe eventually made the team talk seriously, possibly sort of kind of, about about leaving. Um, but, but I, you know, that they wouldn't have, uh, I imagine. Um, I think that the question always was, What's the best deal you can get out of the Flames? Mm-hmm. Is this the best deal you can get out of the Flames? Is this the best expenditure of Calgary's $275 million? Um, I don't know if it's fair to compare this to the cuts because cuts are ongoing. Um, you know, if you cut $60 million in the budget, that's something that you have to find money for. You, know, you, you save money for every year. Um, but this is, you know, is this, was this $275 million? better spent on other infrastructure? Um, and that's a very fair and important question that the public and council have to ask. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's the way to look at it. Uh, we'll see what happens next week. People can read your piece. It's up at mcleans.ca. Jason, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here today. Likewise. Cheers. Take care. Jason Markisov uh, with McLean's Magazine, mcleans.ca. You're going to use this piece looking at, at kind of how things changed or evolved in recent years and how we're now at this point. What's going to happen very quickly Part of that is, I think, to ensure that we don't get into an Olympic situation where the Olympic debate dragged on for so long that opposition just kept growing and growing and growing. I don't think they want that scenario. I do think there's opposition to this. I don't think it's, it's, it is or will be anywhere near the opposition that existed for the Olympics. I think people were turned off by the Olympics for a lot of reasons, and, and, and they don't exist here. In fact, I think even to a lot of people... What was so disappointing about the Olympic bid is that it didn't deliver a new arena. I think there are people who say, yeah, the Saddle Dome's old. We should find a way to get a new one. Whether this is the right deal or whether this is a good deal is, is an inherently subjective question.
but it is interesting, and Jason uh, Markasov touched on it, that there are a lot of very lofty kind of assumptions about what this is going to generate. And the city is, is factoring in some condo developments that are already planned for that area. Now, the city maintains that, that the arena might help expedite some of that. But a lot of that was going to exist anyway. So once this happens, assuming that it does, and then you see some of these condo towers going up and defenders will say, aha, look, the arena's delivering. Well, okay, but when were those particular buildings planned? How much of this was already planned for that area anyway? But it is true that the city has pursued this Rivers District concept, and a big part of that did envision an event center being there. And tying in with what else is happening at the Stampina, that artist rendering that they released. It's funny because it's almost, you, can't, you couldn't even tell at first glance where the actual arena was. I don't know if it's actually going to look like that. It's a very strange design for an arena. Uh, but what's also very prominent in the photo is the Calgary Stampede logo. A lot of people wearing cowboy hats. So there certainly is an idea that there's going to be that very smooth transition from the Stampede and, you know, the, the newly renovated BMO Center right into this uh, Stampede Trail, they're calling it, this new district that'll be right there. And it's all just going to fit perfectly and it's going to be great. Hopefully it will. Well, we are on the eve of the Calgary Folk Music Festival, calgaryfolkfest.com, but it all gets underway tomorrow. Um, now, in addition, of course, to, to all the great music and good times, there's going to be something new this year at Folk Fest, or the Folk Music Festival, a area where consenting adults can consume cannabis. They will have a, a fenced-off cannabis consumption area. I wanted to find out a bit more about how this came about, I guess what the uh, thinking was. And uh, it, it does sound as though maybe this is still a, a pilot project, but it is, I, I think, a first. Joining us to talk more about it is Sarah Leishman, Executive Director of the Calgary Folk Music Festival. Sarah, thanks for making some time for us here today. I know you guys are busy getting ready for tomorrow, but appreciate this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right. So talk a bit about you know, where, where the idea for this came from. Yeah, so this is very much a pilot project. About a year ago, a year and a half ago, we were in conversations, as we always are, with the city of Calgary. And, of course, at that time, the story was just breaking that cannabis was going to be legalized by the federal government. And we knew that there was going to be impacts uh, for public festivals and public events. And so we spoke with the city and the AGLC to do this pilot project to see how a small bylaw exempt consumption site would work within the context of a larger public event or festival. So in the course of conversations over a year with these uh, provincial partners, uh, what we did is we designed a small area. It is 18 plus only, and mm -hmm. people can go in there to consume legal cannabis. So that is smokable cannabis that have acquired by legal means. Um, it is monitored by a security guard, and we will have our partners 420 premium gifts inside the cannabis area, providing education and keeping an eye on things on the inside. Okay, so but they won't be selling any cannabis on site, right? No, they won't be selling anything. It is illegal to sell in this context, and so there will be nothing for sale. 
people can bring in their own, again, legally obtained cannabis. Okay, so it's, it's part of the reason for this, because I, I think there may be, and, and we've probably seen it not just at this event, other events, where maybe people do partake as they're, as they're watching the, the music. Is, is part of the reason for this, then, and it makes it easier to, to direct people to this, so you don't have people uh, smoking marijuana wherever. That's exactly the case. So first and foremost, we are a family-friendly festival, and we know that people experience the festival in their own special way. So make a pit stop at the beer garden. Some people buy a ticket to sit in the beer garden all weekend. Other people want to sit in front of stages. And so knowing that it happened and knowing that the legalization was a new reality for us, we wanted to get ahead of it and try it out in a very simple way so that we can uh, get as much information as we need to see if we want to move forward in each one. So with this, again, it's a change the reality of what's happening with that space, but also in a way that if people don't want to be arrested, they can avoid that area entirely. Yeah. And likewise, if people want to take, we can get them out of, you know, highly traffic, high traffic areas and give them a place where they can consume in a more private setting. So are you going to aim to take more of a zero tolerance approach then to people using cannabis outside of this area? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the only sanctioned area on the island. So on the rest of the island, it's against the bylaws to consume cannabis. So much like smoking, we have a designated cigarette, like tobacco smoking area. So you can expect to see an increase of city bylaw, AGLC representatives, and council police on the island this year, keeping an eye on things. And, uh, and if people are consuming outside of the cannabis area, because they would be contravening a bylaw, they may simply be asked to move to the cannabis area. They may even get a ticket or, depending on the circumstances, may be escorted from the island. Now, who had to give the approval for this? Did you have to go through the city, or did, does the province have a role here, the AGLC? It's really it's under city bylaw, so it's um, working with the city. We had to get their green light, and of course, this early on, we were all on the same right from the beginning. And this isn't a blanket approval going forward, as, as noted. So it's, it is kind of a pilot project to see how it goes this year. But I guess at, at this point, it's, it's not guaranteed that this will, will be part of the Folk Fest next year. That's absolutely correct. So we'll sit down with the AGLC and with the city um, in the fall, and we will evaluate how it went. We have every reason to believe that our audience members are going to be great neighbors to one another by the rules. We have no reason to believe that we wouldn't, but we're not making the parents uh, that we wouldn't have 2020, but we're not making those guarantees yet because we really need to observe. This is a new frontier for everybody, and so we're just trying to figure out what is the way that's the safest and most pleasing for everyone. Yeah, because I think as far as I'm aware, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this, this is basically the first, right, isn't it? My, yeah, to my understanding, it's the first in Calgary. To be honest with you, I'm not sure about... Uh, across Canada, I mm-hmm. do. I am under the impression Folkfest will be doing the same in a couple of weeks' time. But I, as far as I know, we are the first in Calgary. All right. Well, we'll see how it goes this weekend. Uh, much more, of course, on everything going on this week in CalgaryFolkfest.com. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. All right. Take care. That is Sarah Leishman, Executive Director of the Calgary Folk Music Festival. Gets underway tomorrow. And yeah, she mentioned the Edmonton Folk uh, Fest. That's coming up in a not a few weeks, I think she said. Uh, they're going to have this as well. But as as far as we can tell, this is the first in Calgary. 
probably in Alberta, maybe in Canada, we don't know, where an outdoor festival of this kind has had a sanctioned outdoor cannabis consumption zone, kind of like a beer gardens. Well, we know that it's an election year. We know that an election's coming. We know that the election is this fall. Uh, but there is some uncertainty now as to the date of the federal election. October 21st is tentatively when the federal election is supposed to occur. But it's possible that that could be changed. Here's the story today. A change in the upcoming federal election date is possible after a federal court challenge is brought forward by a Toronto conservative candidate. Justice Anne-Marie McDonald has granted a judicial review, sending the matter back to the chief electoral officer for a, quote, redetermination that reflects a proportionate balancing of the charter rights with the statutory mandate. In her decision, McDonald noted, quote, it is not the role of this court to set the election date or to substitute its decision for that of the CEOs. However, she added, quote, I am not satisfied that the necessary circumstances arise in this case to warrant the issuance of a mandamus order. So October 21st is, for now, the federal election date. It is also an important Jewish holiday, Shemini Atzeret, which follows the festival of Sukkot. So how do we balance uh, uh, in a country like Canada where you have a, a lot of different faiths and, and as a result, a, a lot of different religious holidays? Is advanced voting uh, enough to accommodate that? I think there are some issues with the advanced voting dates as well uh, that do conflict. But joining us to, to talk a bit more about all this, very pleased to welcome to the program, uh, Shimon Kofler-Fogel, who's president and CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Mr. Fogel, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. It's good to be back on. All right. Well, help us understand, I guess, why, why we've got a, an issue here. What, what is the uh, significance of, of this particular holiday to those of the Jewish faith? Well, it's the culmination of the uh, high holy day season that begins with Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and uh, and features, of course, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then the festival, in English you would uh, translate it as the fest- Festival of Tabernacles, which which is uh, the concluding uh, set of, of, of holy days uh, rounding out the month. All right, so it, it, it is... In, in terms, I guess, of, of the importance, and, and how, how important is it, then, in, in terms of, of the Jewish faith, and, and how much should that be a consideration, I guess, as we, we decide what to do here? Well, the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, in evaluating importance, I'm not sure that um, it's helpful to compare it, let's say, to Christmas uh, for uh, the Christian faith community or Ramadan for Muslims no. and so forth. The real difference... Uh, as it relates to Jewish holy days, uh, which would include these festivals, but as well, for example, the Sabbath, which occurs obviously every week on a Saturday, is that there are a set of prohibitions attached to the observance of those occasions. So a Jew, uh, uh, an observant Jew, uh, would not be permitted to write or to drive a vehicle uh, or to use electronic devices and so forth. So that obviously would present uh, a real challenge uh, in terms of fulfilling one's responsibilities in the context of an election or as an activist uh, on behalf of a particular candidate and most particularly as a candidate uh, him or herself. Right, so that that would preclude not not maybe not everyone interprets it the same way, but that would potentially preclude people from voting. 
Well, for observant Jews, it absolutely right. would. But this is the thing. Uh, and, you know, for the sake of full disclosure, uh, my organization, CJA, uh, which is the, uh, is the main public affairs arm of, of the organized Jewish community across the country, we actually were not part of the, the um, uh, applicants right. uh, to the court. Uh, we took the view that uh, there were accommodations that Elections Canada had put into place, and we felt that those were uh, material and sufficient in order to ensure that Jews had an opportunity, the observant Jews had an opportunity to cast their ballots and to participate in the election. To be sure, it involved inconvenience, mm -hmm. uh, and especially for a religiously observant candidate, it does represent some disadvantage. But, uh, and this is the important thing uh, that I think Canadians really have to get their heads around, in Canada, we have this notion of reasonable accommodation, meaning that whether it's for religious reasons or uh, individuals with disabilities or gender issues or, or, or whatever the range of, of differences, that the state has an obligation to provide reasonable accommodation for those differences. But that's not an absolute right, and it has to be understood in the context of the broader implications of providing that accommodation. Uh, our view was that Elections Canada worked in good faith to provide accommodation, meaning they were prepared to extend the voting hours uh, in advance polling dates. They were prepared um, to put on staff uh, extra personnel who would be able to handle uh, the higher than, than normal uh, number of, of voters that would come uh, to cast their votes in advance of the uh, general election day. Uh, they were prepared to uh, advertise things in a way that would make people fully aware uh, of what their voting options were and so forth. Yeah. And we felt that that met the test. The applicants in this case argued that um, it wasn't sufficient uh, and that since the chief electoral officer has the capacity to recommend to cabinet uh, that the fixed election date be changed in extraordinary circumstances that in order to create a level playing field the election should be moved one week i'm not sure whether you would call it forward or backwards but to the last week of october which therefore wouldn't conflict with the jewish holidays but to do that the chief electoral officer also has to factor into consideration what is the cost financial, logistical, um, the, you know, the whole menu of, of changes that would have to come about. And, and you have to recall that we have, for example, 66,000 polling stations across the country, most of them in schools. So negotiations have taken place with school boards across the country uh, to put into place professional development days so that they can free up the schools uh, for, for the community to go and vote. Uh, it means uh, extending uh, the uh, employment of uh, officials who are working as returning officers and the like at each of those polling stations by an additional week. It means breaking leases 
and signing new leases with all of those polling stations. So there's a, there's a whole basket of things that uh, the CEO, the chief electoral officer, has to consider when he's balancing these competing imperatives. We're not arguing that Jews in general and uh, Jewish candidates or religiously observant Jewish candidates aren't disadvantaged under these circumstances. Yeah. Our view simply was that it doesn't outweigh the accommodations that are being asked for. Okay, and that, yeah, that's important to clarify, and it's also important people understand that uh, Elections Canada is not oblivious to all of this, and obviously Elections Canada is well aware of these issues, and as as you say, they're, they're taking steps to, to try to mitigate it as, as much as they can. Now, perhaps you could clarify, too, because I understand, I mean, obviously there is advanced polling, as, as there is ahead of any other federal election, but there is a potential conflict uh, around the advanced polling dates. Is that the case? Yeah, so in, in, in that sense, it's a bit of a perfect storm. Um, not only is, a, is the election Election Day, uh, October 21st, uh, coincident with a major Jewish uh, festival. Uh, but two of the four advanced polling dates also conflict. One conflicts um, with the Sabbath on a Saturday, so uh, that would eliminate the possibility of observant Jews uh, using that opportunity to vote. And uh, a second of the four days uh, coincides with the first day of Sukkot, of the festival that we're just talking about, and there, too, the prohibitions apply. So um, they would reduce by 50% uh, the advanced polling opportunities that they have. But, but, but your listeners will also be aware that as soon as the writ is issued, as soon as the, the election campaign starts, um, there, there is the opportunity for any Canadian in any part of the country to cast the ballot in at least 25 or 30 days in advance of, of the election. Uh, they just have to do it at the returning office as opposed to the typical polling station at your neighborhood uh, school that you, you normally would cast your ballot at. So there is some inconvenience, uh, but there are opportunities to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so have you had the opportunity as well, then, as, as far as your organization is concerned, to, to convey that to Elections Canada? Is Elections Canada getting uh, a lot of different input then from, from the community and various organizations such as yours? Well, we've engaged with them for uh, almost a year now, for 11 months, as I, as I look back on the record. We have found them to be uh, responsive uh, and responsible. Um, I'll be honest, I'm not sure that they did a, an especially good job in presenting their case to the court uh, last week. Uh, so I think that when the judge raised questions about uh, how did they arrive at the decision that he did, uh, namely uh, not to recommend to cabinet uh, that the date be changed. Uh, I don't think that they made it entirely clear what all the factors were that they considered. Uh, but, uh, you know, one could also argue that there's just a, a legitimate difference of opinion. There are those mm-hmm. that, that believe that uh, there should be no impediments uh, or constraints on somebody's right to either participate in an election um, or to vote in an election. And there are those, uh, we would be amongst that, that second group, who feel that uh, we have to draw some limits on the extent to which 
the state is going to accommodate all of the diverse differences and needs of different subsections of the community. And here I'm negotiating against myself sure. because I'm, I'm the community that's going to be affected here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if the election were to take place on Christmas Day, uh, it wouldn't prevent anybody who observes Christmas from voting because they don't have the same yeah. uh, prohibitions attached to it. Uh, but I'm still saying that if we want Canada to function in the best possible way, we have to recognize that our obligations extend beyond our own self-interest. Uh, we have to also ask the question, what is best for Canada? And uh, with the, you know, an election costs, uh, I don't think people reflect on this, but an election costs upwards of $500 million each time we go to the polls uh, for a federal election. Um, that's, a, that's a huge amount of money. Uh, consider what additional costs would be attached to that just on the financial side alone uh, if we were at this point to push the election date uh, after elections Canada has negotiated with uh, uh, leases across the country for the last 18 months uh, it's a significant amount of change uh, and you know so I think that we do as Canadians have a responsibility to not just consider our own parochial interests but the broader interests of our society in general. And it sends a signal to people. It says that we uh, cherish and uh, we uh, enable as a country people to give expression to their personal identities, but we want that to be integrated fully into the fabric of the country and the welfare of the country. And that means that sometimes we have to take a little step back from our own interest in uh, consideration of or for the benefit of the larger interest. Yeah, that's very well said. By the way, I mean, four years ago, I think it was October 19th that we had the, the 2015 election. Did we manage to, to avoid the, these conflicts in, in 2015? Uh, so um, we've had many conflicts. Um, uh, to be honest, I think that the real difference this time around is that it's not only the voters that are being impacted, but it's um, a candidate for yeah. office. Uh, and there can be no doubt that a candidate running for for uh, for office um, is going to be impacted um, in 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 a very real and meaningful way. Uh, that's why we've been talking to Elections Canada about uh, considering a permanent move of the fixed date. So uh, our hope is that once the next parliament um, is in place, uh, we'll be able to make representations uh, and, and advance the argument that uh, rather than uh, the third Monday of October, um, as the fixed election date, we should consider moving it to the first Monday of November. And that way you would never get any conflict um, with the Jewish holiday cycle. And it happens to be, just by coincidence, only the Jewish community uh, that would be impacted that way. Uh, you know, nobody's contemplating an election on Christmas Day or on Easter. No. Uh, nobody's 
uh, you know, you can't really do it with Ramadan for Muslims because that moves throughout the whole year. Um, they're on a lunar cycle, uh, and they don't have the same constraints uh, in observance of Ramadan. Uh, so uh, they might go to the polls hungry uh, because you know they they uh, fast during the days during the month of Ramadan, but uh, you know they are they are able to exercise their right to vote. Uh, so that's what we're looking for is a long term solution. Uh, for this time around, we're just looking for mitigation uh, so that Elections Canada puts into place resources uh, that will ensure uh, the maximum opportunity for Jews to cast their ballots and to participate in the electoral process. All right. More at uh, CIJA.ca. Shimon, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Take care. Uh, Shimon Fogel is president and CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. I think he makes some interesting points. And again, just so everybody's clear, uh, it was a federal conservative candidate that came forward and filed this claim in court. So people are wondering, well, why, why, is this, why has this never come up before? Because you've never had a candidate before argue that this, this infringed on their rights. So that's why this came forward. B'nai B'rith did intervene uh, in support of that candidate. Uh, but as our, our guest noted, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs does not support changing the election date. They feel that, that Elections Canada uh, has done enough to ensure that, that any observant Jews potentially affected by this have an opportunity to vote. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.